Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. And you know what? This is for you, Tim. Hey, thanks very much. I did flub the first one of those. I don't know if we'll cut that out or not. Maybe we'll throw it in at the end like a blooper. <laughs> Maybe. Um, yeah. But that applause is for you because I think this is the first time you've messed up the intro read in like 48 weeks. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that one snuck up on me. It's a nice little way to uh, mark the end of the season, I think, is by messing up for once. Yeah. So happy <laughs> one year anniversary yeah. to Single Serving Cinema podcast, first of all. We're going to toot our own horn. But mm-hmm. uh, I, it's it's a big deal. And uh, I was actually watching a different podcast where one of the hosts, their policy is if you do an ad read without any flubs, you get a round of applause. So okay, that's for you. Right on. Well, when we get ads, I, yeah. I'd love to, to pick up that policy. We'll but implement it's, that. It's more about me being excited if we were to get ads. So if anyone <laughs> wants to hook us up out there, you let us know. But yeah. Uh, very excited to be doing our, our final episode of the season. Thanks to everyone who stuck around with us. Um, and we're sorry that you didn't get to vote on this one, but being that Taylor and I have completed the lap here, we took it on ourselves to uh, pick one of our favorite movies. Um, we're, uh, we're ending this season with Children of Men uh, yes. by Alfonso Cuaron. I think mutually we decided this is our favorite mu- movie combined, right? Like it's, on bo- it's in both of our top 10, if not top fives. I think so. Like, if you were to chart us against each other, this was the easiest call for this first time. I know in coming season finales, maybe we'll have a bit more of a discussion, but this kind of felt like a no-brainer. And what I wonder, like, I know it's one of our combined favorites, but do you think do you think this movie is maybe the best movie of the 21st century so far? Is it contender for top three, top five, top ten? Yeah, uh, you know, I was actually looking at when I was just doing my basic research i saw how many top 10 lists this made of the year 2006 Mm -hmm. uh when it was released and it was number one on several lists but not on every list so it it was it's clear at the time how it was thought as a pretty revered film but i think Mm -hmm. the more time passes the more we can look back at this film and say see how well aged and say wow this movie has just transcended so many movies that have come out since this movie it's so much more aware so much more woke if you want to use a more contemporary term mm-hmm. yeah certainly like we'll, we'll we'll talk about how this movie is oddly prescient uh came out in 2006 um and definitely had some commentary to make about things right at that time like the height of the afghan war and things like that but there were a number of things that this movie presents being said in 2027 that are were apparent in in from our perspective just a couple of years ago and continue to be exacerbated. We're not going to spend too much time on the politics and the real world parallels because honestly, this movie is about sort of losing and finding your hope. And I think comparing it with the real world maybe will be more of an exercise in uh, a more depressive consideration. <laughs> so we can we can we're going to stick with the movie itself for the most part. Um, but yeah, no, I think this is an easy contender for one of the best movies of the 21st century, easily for its decade. There's one other that really sticks out to me, which we can talk about in a year's time, maybe. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, like just if anyone hasn't seen it again, as always, uh, we'll, we'll lay some groundwork here. Um, in the year 2027, the inexplicably infertile human race suffers amidst war, famine, plague, and worse. Theo, a disillusioned activist, is charged with guarding humanity's last hope on a harrowing journey from London to the coast of Great Britain. 
this movie, Children of Men, was based on the novel of the same name by P.D. James. Uh, it stars Clive Owen and Claire Hope Shitty, and was directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Was released December twenty fifth, two thousand and six. So Christmas movie. Yeah. Does that is that really smart or is that really dumb? Because as much as we talked about this movie maybe being the greatest movie of its generation, it lost money. Yeah, that's a weird release time. I get like <laughs> there's a nativity aspect to this movie. I guess. I guess you could <laughs> but... say there's like the whole idea of renewal and mm-hmm. resetting and it comes out the week before the new year. A movie like this doesn't seem to have that right tone. No, it like that's the thing. For as much as I say this movie is, I think, ultimately hopeful, um, it's a slog. It's it's a hard watch in a number of ways, while also being so well made that it really propels you through it. But I think at best, like you could say, they put it out on Christmas because there is that, you know, they joke about immaculate conception in this. There's obviously tons of parallels you can make to uh, Joseph, like a like a an uninvolved father figure still being charged with protecting this unborn child and getting the woman where she needs to be to have the birth and there being no room in a in a proper place to give a birth so they give birth in a different place there are all these parallels but the impression i get from the research is that they didn't know how to market this um that that rings true i remember even at the time there was a complaint about Julianne Moore being removed from the movie so quick because she was such a big name attached to it. And that was something that mm-hmm. critics were kind of... This was ahead of ahead of its time in many ways, and like in terms of killing off a character that was a big part of the casting. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing Julianne Moore's name beside Clive Owen's name on this poster means you're going to see a lot of her in the movie. And she's obviously probably... The, well, she other than Michael Caine, maybe the most recognizable name in the film and yeah she, they kill her off and there was complaining at the time i remember even back to, like i was pretty young but i remember that being a common complaint i mean that is something to consider you you would see them using her to promote the movie for sure she'd be on panel she'd be talking yeah. it up and she lasts about uh, like just a little bit more than an act i suppose if you're going to lay down the structure they're kind of just on their way into into act 2 which is why and i mean we're talking Arguably, you're talking about spoilers for 30 minutes into the movie, but this is what we're going to talk about in our scene, so it's all it's all fair game anyway. Um, I think I think that death happens for a very important reason, and it has all these great effects, which we'll get into. But I mean, that's why in our in our summary that I just gave a couple minutes ago, I said it stars Clive Owen and and um, and a shitty because they're the ones you see the most, right? Like, um, I think I think. Um, I think Claire Hope is shitty is kind of a bit pushed down in the cast order and not really that thought of that much. That didn't make any sense on any of the yeah. lists that I was seeing. Like You're getting yeah. like Charlie Hunnam's name in the cast. Yeah. I didn't even know he was in the movie. I also, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Charlie Hunnam too because I have opinions about him. And I think this is maybe one of the best times he's been cast strategically as just sort of like a meathead. Is he the uh, tweaker the guy with the dreads? With the dreads, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. just always angry. It's yeah, like, yeah, that's that that's Hunnam's energy. That's that's well harnessed, right? But um, I mean, it is a big cast, but she is undeniably the co lead, and she's basically never credited as such. But she, she, she carries a pivotal role in this movie, and I don't even think she acts as a MacGuffin, which you could have in this story as her just being this vessel. She has interesting uh, scenes. She has 
different ideas. She has agency. There's a lot of importance about her deferring to Theo, to Clive Owen's character, and her being being given choices throughout the movie. Yeah, she is fully like characterized. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think I think it's unfortunate. That's why you know I felt we could do a little bit of justice by <laughs> listing her as a co-star in our summary, at least. Well, I think they, um, those are the two leads of the film, and mm-hmm. I don't really understand any argument otherwise. You could yeah. say that there's a well-rounded supporting cast, but the supporting cast mm-hmm. isn't in the movie a whole lot. They use a lot of extras, a lot of uh, like tertiary characters that don't get many that don't get that characterization, but do have a lot of dialogue and a role to play in helping our two leads mm-hmm. along. So yeah, that that was kind of something that stood out to me researching the film too. Um, not only her though, the woman who plays Miriam, uh, mm-hmm. she's sorry, great. Uh, Pam Ferris. Also her name mm-hmm. was omitted from a bunch of these lists of exp- that were elaborating on the cast. And I'm all for like, I remember at the time Chiwetel Ejiofor was not really that well known of an actor, but I knew him from a couple movies um, specifically mm-hmm. Kinky Boots, which is a great movie. Yeah. Um, and he he wasn't on any of these lists either. It was Clive Owen, Julian Moore, uh, and Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you that's know, changed that's somehow that's, that's, that's somehow how the, sometimes how the marketing has to work. If you want to sell, you have to promote on stuff like that. But even, you know, look, this movie didn't do well in Mexico, where Cuaron is from, mm-hmm. where you feel like it's a no-brainer to be like a, you know, someone who grew up here, you know, a local, just like you do with Canadian filmmakers for us and things like that, and say they're making a Hollywood movie. They're working with Michael Caine. They're working with these big actors. They've got a big budget, a relatively big budget. It's it's reported somewhere between 72 and 76 million. It made around 70 and a half million. So I know as numbers, it doesn't seem like a huge bomb, but remember in movies, if you're not like doubling then it's kind of a bit of a failure and if you're anywhere near what you spent it's a it's an abject flop um yeah and that's i mean that and this is coming off of a pretty successful domestic release in itumama tambien Mm -hmm. which should have kind of propelled him into the national limelight of this is one of our best upcoming filmmakers why wouldn't we go support him but maybe it relates to the same release schedule issues uh just mm-hmm. the fact that no one wanted to see this movie around the beginning of the year when it would have yeah. had its theater run yeah I'm, I'm not sure i mean but there's also let's not overlook the fact that quaron um he pushed his production schedule on this to make harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban right which is i think largely considered to be the most interesting of the harry potter franchise it has the most unique feel it has the most i think attention to design and world building best cinematography and stuff like that yeah that we'll talk about in, I mean, Quaron's got a great hand for world building in general. But I think there are lots of reasons why this movie should have made a healthy return. It didn't have to be, you know, a blockbuster or anything. But it's it's very interesting that it failed this hard. And uh, and is such a clearly great movie. Basically anyone who's seen it, I think they're, they're on board with how great it is. And um, I think one of the best relics in it, sorry, I don't, I don't mean this too negatively, but I, it's more of a, more of a lament uh, is uh, Clive Owen. I am such a fan, and we get to see so little of him yeah, in general, right? <laughs> yeah, like just in movies? Yeah. Well, funny enough, I was racking my brain trying to think of the last time I saw Clive Owen, but mm-hmm. and that, that still remains a mystery. I don't know what the most recent movie I saw him in is, but the, have, did you ever see the movie Shoot Him Up? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's fine. It's like a terrible <laughs> run of the it's mill. It's very silly, <laughs> gunslinging movie. But mm-hmm. he has to deliver a baby in that movie in a very different way. And I was like, oh, I wonder which one came out first between <laughs> which Clive Owen birth. Does he does he shoot the umbilical cord? He, I'm pretty he has sure to I remember shoot that. the umbilical cord. Yeah, in the, like the yeah. opening scene of shoot him up to deliver that baby, yeah. and in this it's like so a drastically different baby delivery. But shoot him up did come up come out a year later, so it's after mm-hmm. Children of Men. So he's well practiced in baby delivery. I mean, the guys the guy's got like he's got range, right? Yeah, he can. I like Clive Owen a lot. He can cut an umbilical cord so many different ways, right? That's what you're <laughs> looking for in an actor. That's what we call a five tool player, right yeah. there to uh to jump back two episodes but no i mean looking at his imdb he's worked consistently just not super high profile stuff like i haven't seen gemini man by um uh with that that's ang lee right where will smith plays his younger self Uh -uh. he's in that as a guy called clay varis and i can just see in my mind like the government like basically what brian cox used to play in like all the born movies where he's just a high up guy (laughs) In in like a secret government agency who gives you some exposition, I assume he's doing that. Um, I don't I don't know, man. Yeah, he hasn't hasn't been in a ton. That what I would say was the best. And unfortunately, we're a movie podcast, but I will just secretly let you know that the Nick by um, Steven Soderbergh, the show, is really good. Where uh, Clive Owen plays a uh, a surgeon at the at the basically the the birth of modern surgery techniques. Um, yeah, very, that, very I cool heard show. really good things about that yeah. show, which, uh, I, like, apparently it's Soderbergh, so it plays more like a movie anyways. Yeah. Yeah, right? it's pretty watchable. Um, but anyway, Clive Owen, really great to see him in this. I think he he's like a Hall of Famer for looking tired. And, like, if you're going to cast him in your kind of dystopian London, uh, I think I think he's a knockout uh, choice for Quaron. Yeah, he's got that built-in dissatisfied disgruntled look uh he looks he's got the built-in bags under his eyes so he's Mm -hmm. got the tired look uh and he he can play grumpy but what i wanted to point out specifically about children of men upon this rewatch was how much levity he actually brings to the movie in the this role uh -hmm. and it's not just the things he says it's how the movie uses him as well uh there's a specific note of how animals like him in mm-hmm. the film yeah which, which is not something that is pointed it like they draw a lot of attention to but subtlety and uh, like some lines from certain characters and then just some camera work indicate how much some dogs and cats just gravitate towards his character and then yeah there's the, that first person view where the cat's like climbing up his his trousers yeah and he right? like and then the uh i think her name's maruka her dog likes him and then yeah and and yeah the people on the farm they're the like dogs. the dogs don't like anybody but they like you and i i do i do like that again that's a subtle way of just sort of adding to your maybe even just a little bit less than conscious um perspective of theo mm-hmm. is you're just kind of like yeah like he i love the feeling of built-in history in this movie yes and the world really well building itself too and i think this is a great case study for how performance lends itself to world building because world building can so often be achieved by what you put in your background how you deliver exposition the laziest world building ever always with without fail is like starting your movie with like some news feeds that are saying exactly what the thing is what i like about this is 
they do start with the news feeds, but they're always talking about the symptoms. They're talking about Britain closing its borders. They're talking about war in other countries. Um, there's a part where Theo mentions where your parents in New York when it happened, and they don't even say what it was. Yeah, there's right? a lot of ambiguity as to mm-hmm. what actually drove the world to such despair. And we know the inciting incident, but we don't know exactly the steps it took to get from that inciting incident to where we see the film when we start. Well, and again, very realistically and fleshed out is the idea that this is a world where the core problem is infertility on a human wide scale, right? But that is not the only problem. That thing leads to all these other things. It, but then at the it, core uh, of it, it emphasizes got, all those other things. Yeah. Or it exacerbates them. It makes them all worse, like famine and control of resources. And even though you would think, in theory, on paper, you'd think the the human race would be like, okay, we have fewer mouths to feed. Surely we'll be fine, right? In terms of resources, right? Like we're only going to have more land and more food and things like that. But I and I mean, I'm not an economist. That may not actually be how it works when your when your birth rate goes down. I know there are a bunch of countries right now that are super worried about how old their population's getting and how people our age aren't having kids. Um, But I I mean, these things I don't feel like they track 100. percent But what sells them is again like Clive Owen and these other characters who have this. I think from Quaron, very well directed sense of begrudging acceptance. Everyone's just living in this world because you would have to, right? It's not the road. It's not, you're not just like, oh, we just need water and food and shelter and not to be eaten by cannibals. It's, well, you still have to go to your job and you have to watch the news when baby Diego dies. And, you know, you have these little bright points. I love that they, the the first act, they set up Theo's life. And you see that, like, it's not all bad. He gets to visit Michael Caine. And Michael Caine has a uniquely optimistic well, not even optimistic, but well, positively he, accepting yeah. stance, despite horrible things that have happened to him and his wife, right? But he's still, he's cracking jokes, and he's, he, I think, Michael Caine's character, without ever saying it outright, I think he understands that he can still have a positive effect on the people around him, mm-hmm. and that's that's still worth doing, right? Even while you're, you're facing down the sunset of, of humanity. So it's not just Theo walking from, like, being mugged to a, 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 a bombing to one bad thing after another. If we lived in this world five years from now, you would all have these, this is the good part of your life, and these are the, the hard parts that we mitigate. And I think it just establishes this real, sorry, I was about to say real sense of realism, but I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can't be overstated how much you feel the world has been impacted by infertility. And it's something that maybe is hard to imagine. And that's why being so ambiguous with the actual traumatic events that led to the world crumbling are kind of Mm -hmm. like, I think that's why that works so well, because our imaginations just run wild with how much despair this like seemingly simple idea would create and almost manifest as like a poison in us. It would kind of create Mm -hmm. this sense of, pointlessness and meaninglessness in life if there's no other generation to fight for yeah maybe the reason why this movie sticks with me so much is that it's not something that i ever considered as a world-ending scenario i you you can picture a bunch of other ways the world's going to crumble and end this is a way that like you said 
exacerbates all the other problems to a point where the world literally just is destroyed. Except yeah. for Britain. Of course, Britain soldiers on, as yeah. they would. Um, not surprised they have a natural defense. They've got a they've got a uh, you know a world made moat. I'm guessing P. D. James is from England. Yes, she is. She is from England. Uh, she's a British author, and oh, I mean, yeah, that's. I think some of the other things that really help sell this and build it, and I'm sure this is right from the book, but the concept of the world's youngest person, right? I love that. Like, if you just put on paper, like, what if the world had no, the world was infertile? It's like, what would that create in our culture? And it's like, of course, there'd be celebrity around the world's youngest person. Another thing that I know is from the books, but they didn't put in the movie, was that there became this huge economy for infantile animals, right? People would keep puppies and cats. I'm pretty sure in the book they're like genetically designed not to age and just everyone babies like these little animals because they don't have babies anymore right and and there's some aspect of that in the book but i I, it's probably extremely simple for quaron to be like you know what we're not going to deal with dozens of onset animals and stuff like that we'll just stick with our i mean they dealt with plenty of animals as it is yeah so yeah um, that's that seems like a reasonable omission from the text but that's really cool that that's the way the book was written i like that idea But when once again, when you can show the impact of infertility so visually well, which I don't mm-hmm. think is an easy task, I think Koran did such a good job, then I don't think you need to have so much context, which is why the ambiguity once again works. Mm-hmm. Because visually, it's so p- impactful on the viewer already, the effects of like that this has had on everybody in the world. And I don't think you need more context. You need... To just yeah. see these, you need to stick with the visuals you have. Mm-hmm. And and to go a step further, I think it's a great setting to explore the idea of hope and how necessary it is, right? Because like, there are, it's it's really it's just built into our DNA that like it doesn't matter how bad your life is or what you struggle and go through, but it's like you know there's another generation, yes, you know this right. is going to keep going. There is there is some part of your lizard brain that's like, well, the human race is still here. And as soon as you take that away, you cut off the leading edge of humanity and people just have to watch themselves wither and get old. And as they say, like when you lose the sound of children and stuff like that, and they, and they, it's built right in the sets too. There's a great sequence where they go to an old um, school. Yeah. And you're like, Oh yeah, those would just be derelict. Like at certain, like, you know, once Diego hit 18, no one on, on earth is younger than that. Right. There's everyone on earth is of voting age or of drinking age or, I, there's all these concepts that play in your mind where you're just like, there's... Yeah, there's no drinking age anymore. That's another yeah, one I, I hadn't just, even considered. Everyone, everyone's there. And I, I mean, and it, I think you have that in Clive Owen's performance and you have um, a, a different take on it in Michael Caine's performance. So like, go, go positive, go negative, things like that. Or, you know, Julianne Moore being like, well, we can do something about it. We can fight for this, not be resigned. And then you see it in the world itself too. I like that that opening scene, which is truly incredible yeah in in how well it establishes everything i think london looks kind of dickensian it's smoky and dusty and you have these people with like these motorbike drawn rickshaws right there's almost no good cars but then there's these little futuristic bits right there are um these audio visual signs up on the like like very like um minority report style yeah but not like, in your face it's no all just kind of like background. the way it's that they subtle. are yeah. so interactive i guess the, the mm-hmm. advertising right or they they just change the way the buses look a little bit right um 
And, and I mean, in the scene that we're going to talk about, that you have the heads-up display of all your, your meters for the car are on the windshield and not mm-hmm. in the dash. Things like that. And, like, the cars are shaped like, I don't know, like concept PT cruisers, right? They're yeah. all just these, take it 2% further, not 50% further. Don't show us new inventions, because the other thing is that if people do, can't have kids, they're not going to make new inventions. They're not going to do something for the future. Yeah, that that's, like, a huge takeaway from the movie, too, is that everything that seemingly or that is seemingly new tech was designed practically or for a pragmatic purpose rather than Mm -hmm. to be more innovative because the sense of innovation seems to be washed away uh, of pushing forward that whole ideology seems to be gone from this world but out all the tech things that all the tech upgrades we do see seem to be out of pure necessity uh Mm -hmm. and just and that this is really simple it's it's cars it's guns i noticed are subtly different mm-hmm. uh and you know um jasper's wife's wheelchair is one other thing yeah and then and think, like the tv screens are like thin like sort of they look like if you had to extrapolate like a liquid crystal display into the future yeah which you kind of would have from the time and just be like they're thinner there's no bezeling there's no body they're just mounted you yeah. know and then things like that but the probably the most sci- or sci-fi thing in the whole movie is uh Theo's cousin Nigel he has a son who has mm-hmm. like the, he's interacting with some like a kind Rubik's of, cube uh yeah but it lo- almost looked like something you see in like like a cryptocurrency like, a uh, like yeah. cryptocurrency <laughs> explanations or something it was like the moving cube stuff and he's got mm-hmm. the the wires attached to his hand that are yeah. controlling something remotely yeah, there's something going on with his son that I wonder if it's in the book because like he's he has to take medication and he's scarred and he's very yeah. like closed off and I love that they just Quaron just drops that there he's like this is you'll never know exactly what this is unless of course it's in the book and it's it's more of a you know in the way that a book can in a paragraph just give you context on something mm-hmm. that a movie would just show you um I love that it's just like this is this guy has a son and he looks like he's probably early twenties, so he's among yeah. the youngest yeah, people in the world. He's the youngest person we see in the movie until yeah. the baby is born, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, I think you're right. Koran leaves it to our discretion to kind of take what we want from that scene and mm-hmm. like how so how did you interpret it? That scene like with the son? Yeah. I feel like my I get the impression like he's been so sheltered and there may even be something wrong with him that the medication is dealing with because he's like this precious reason like just like his dad is preserving all these works of art he is there's something that he's like he's making sure he's more of a a steward or a warden of his son than he is a father right because his son is like this a final resource Mm -hmm. right his youth and I mean they could have done that way more obviously they could have had him like in a bubble room you know boy in a bubble thing yeah and just and and done it like that. I like that this is like, well, he's still like, you know, he's at the dinner table and he's playing his video game, but that's my take, but honestly, I don't know and I love I think it's a great tool in world building is like don't explain everything. Drop yeah. a few question marks and leave them there. I think to me it seemed like they presented this character as the most technologically advanced or just a uh, capable like he was using mm-hmm. the most advanced piece of tech we see in the whole movie. 
uh, like the next generation always will. Well. Like kids, kids yeah. are better with their smartphones than their parents, etc. Right. So there was like a generational thing there. But then I think I like your comment about the preservation aspect of his father, and mm-hmm. the reason why he's probably sitting at the table is to maintain some sort of traditional image. Yeah. And there's there's just a lot you can dig into from that little mm-hmm. tiny interaction from a character we don't even know their name. I don't remember his yeah. name at least. I think he yells his name at him. It might yeah. be Max. But um, anyway, so all of these little bits of technology, just just speaking back to that, is that I think I think they very easily sell from 2006 that this is 2027, and I think right now I still buy it, right? And like, yep. we touch on this briefly, but people more and more, I think this movie keeps gaining more credit because it keeps becoming more right in terms of its um predictions of our political climates and the way that countries will start treating each other right like this was a decade before trump became very ant like anti-immigration and britain too right like this was before brexit and that's a key part of this movie is just seeing the extreme lengths that the british government is going to to round up um what they call fujis refugees yes um literally having them in cages on open streets right so there's this kind of in your face uh, xenophobia at play and all of it has been proven true just not quite to the degree but i'd say closer than you would have wanted to guess at the time right i think koran has always maintained such a strong global perspective in his films and mm. I think that's why some of these themes ring so true and continue to remain so relevant, even, you know, like 15 years after the movie's release. I think coming from Mexico, a place that, you know, suffers from incredible economic injustice and class disparity, like a an, a, a crazy class disparity there. Um, he came from a more privileged place, but also a place where he could juxtapose these two worlds against each other and i think that's what you see so much in not only Mm -hmm. his world building in his movies but in his cinematography in his Mm -hmm. in the themes that he's presenting in the characters that he creates uh and so jumping off that can we dive into some of the cinematography a bit before we get to the scene i don't want to because our scene is so much about cinematography so i don't want to step on the scene exactly but uh, a lot of like you you sent me a video this morning and I'd already, I saw that years ago, but it reminded me of all these of all this context about Koran and his one of his earliest films, Itumama Tambien, which we've already mentioned today uh, from I think it's two thousand one. Uh, that movie introduced a kind of revolutionary sort of cinematography in tandem with Emmanuel Luzbeki, who is his cinematographer. They came up with a way where the camera almost took on the film's worldview rather than mm-hmm. any particular character's perspective. And in Itumamba Tambien, this is done in a much more low-budget kind of looking way, which is yeah. the camera drifts away from the characters, will focus on, uh, say, something in the background, and then a narration would cross over into, like, your, into the main story and tell you why this piece of land or this house in the background is important to the story of Mexico and mm-hmm. uh, at the context of Itumam and Tambien is actually about the political riptide going yeah. on there at that point in time. So there's something very special about the way he commands his camera. And in Children of Men, 
there's you don't get the more over the top stylized narration you just mm-hmm. get where the camera is looking is the perspective that the film wants you to take and this can be following the main characters this could be straying off to focus on something in the background and this yeah. could be just looking up at the sky sometimes sometimes the camera literally just moves around just to show you a space and i think this is brilliant i think it makes this world feel so much more uh real because it's like i think there's this subconscious understanding that as your camera's following your subject which is usually clive owen there's only certain places the camera can go and not even in a functional way like oh well if it's on tracks you can only go there or, like cameras can't go through bodies etc all the like, stuff that fincher plays with i mean like the way we've been trained to watch movies by watching movies our whole life is this camera's going to stay with Clive Owen. If it doesn't, it's going to do it for a very specific purpose where like you can't see him for a second, but you can still hear him talking. Right. And this camera will almost just disinterestedly drift off away from him as he walks down the street and will go through, you know, a gathering of the, I think the repenters, whoever the people who they just kneel nonstop to try to save the world. Right. Like one of the many religious, um, uh, splinters that 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 comes out of this infertile world or it'll again it'll it'll veer off and go right up to these cages of of fujis and you hear all the different languages they're speaking and yeah i mean as as they as one of those videos mentioned like one of them is very specifically a woman speaking german uh and being this little just sort of touching upon the idea of the holocaust right like right this sort of reversal or that like you know no one is above or beyond this given the appropriate settings so I think it, it, it teaches you to start thinking that, like, oh, at any given moment, this camera could go anywhere, and the movie would continue. This is this set doesn't end at the frame of the camera. The set right. goes... It's not stage bound. It goes all across Great Britain. It goes across, you know, the, uh, the channel and across the Atlantic Ocean. This whole world is real, and it's there, and you could just walk into it and see the horrible things that are happening. And I think it's such a powerful technique. Um... And I've only really seen it done outside of Quaron's work with one other one. It's in Blade Runner. There are a couple sequences where Deckard will be walking towards his goal. He'll be doing his thing. And the camera will just pan over. And in those, I really feel like it's Ridley Scott being like, look at this world I created. Right? Because you right. see the fulsome production design. You see the, you remember in like um, Blade Runner, those bikers with the big like crab helmets right they're going under the underpass and people have the light up umbrellas and he's really Mm -hmm. establishing the cyberpunk technique this one feels way more in service of the movies um again it's world right and you're right like all of this stuff could be done with voiceover um or achieved in less subtle ways but in this way the camera just sort of drifts off and shows you another corner of this world that has endless corners right it's very powerful yeah his technique really advanced for me to mama tambien it's so powerful the way he is able to move the camera. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and it should be mentioned that, yeah, what, like 95% of this movie is shot with a handheld shake. Not necessarily all actually handheld, but it's made to look documentarian. Yeah, and that's, um, and I mean, that's we, the last thing I wanted to note about cinematography because our scene doesn't actually include this aspect. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, yeah. Because part of the realism of the cinematography in this movie is what we call documentary realism. Um, which basically means the mobile camera that you can tell someone is actually operating it and it's not mm-hmm. smooth. Um, and But also this means natural lighting, meaning it doesn't look like lighting is coming from 
a Hollywood source, like a Hollywood light. It's coming mm-hmm. from the world itself. And that's why this movie has so many dark scenes where the lighting is very primitive. But yet this is what creates this sense of realness that you don't really get in a more Hollywoodized production because the lighting is too perfect and choreographed mm-hmm. and staged. And there's a real art to this style of handheld thing because I think we even talked about it just a couple episodes ago with Moneyball was that you look at that script and you're like, oh, we want to make it feel real. Even though we're putting Brad Pitt on screen, which is a inherently unrealistic thing to do. Nobody looks like that. They could have been very easy for them to say, okay, well, it should be handheld cameras. It'll look like they're shooting a documentary just like The Office or just like like uh, uh, The Office as a mockumentary or an actual documentary of things that happened in the in the uh, the athletics um, management areas. Um but they wisely chose not to. And in this case, I, d- I do think, yeah, there's an art to this. There, You have to get the lighting right, and you have to know when not to do it, when it's not going to be an effective use of your camera, which we, we get into with our scene. Yeah, so are we good to jump into that? I think we're good. Okay, so I guess the first note, uh, before I even give you the scene summary, is that this whole thing takes place in one single take, or one apparent single take, yeah, uh, there are some trick cuts in this, but it looks pretty flawless even to this day. And I'm I've been watching the DVD version, so I'm not even watching the HD or 4K. Um, so this mo- scene takes place 26 minutes into the movie and goes to about 30 minutes into the movie, about a four minute take. Uh, while driving with several members of Fishes, the immigrant right activist group, including his ex-wife Julianne, Theo and the group fall under fire from an armed gang. Uh, while retreating, Julian is shot in the neck and killed, and the driver Luke is pushed to the is pushed to the edge and murders two police officers to cover their tracks. The scene stars Julian Moore as Julian, Clive Owen as Theo, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Luke, Pam Ferris as Miriam, and Claire Hope Ashidi as Key. Yeah, yeah. So one thing you mentioned this, and it's pretty wild that we didn't touch on it till now but i guess we very wisely saved it for this scene is that this movie is famous for its oneers or single takes apparent single takes um it has multiple and it has one in its final act that i think is very iconic uh it's extremely long it's extremely complex and i mean we've talked about i'd say as far back as the Cretia episode we talked about what it's the in, we talked about the inherent difficulty in doing even a short take that involves a lot of moving parts, right? We talked about group scenes and that. We talked about it with uh, Soderbergh and Oceans as well. The more actors you have, it just becomes infinitely more complex. And that's when you're cutting, on average, what, every two, three seconds? Depending on yeah. the movie and the, the, the speed of the sequence. In this, it it appears as a 40, or uh, 40, as a four-minute take, Um Depending on your analysis, there's maybe two hidden takes in it. I think and there's I, what I like is more. That, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like the corridor crew guys, we love them. We'll link it, and the, they do it, and they they pick out two really good spots where you can you can kind of guess that they'd have a take or three, I think. Yeah, I, right? I the, got the shattering windshield when they when the camera goes outside the car and switches to handheld. That's um, the best one. The whip pan when Julian gets shot. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's, there's another a, there's one a fourth, in this scene. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But they're they're all they're extremely seamless and I think to Quaron and Lubezki's benefit, this was early on in the big oneers. Like, you know, you had stuff like rope, 
the Hitchcock movie that appears to be done in one take and, and other people would do it from time to time. But like, we all know this has become more of a big thing in modern cinema over the past more decade. More of a gimmick? Yeah, definitely more of a gimmick. And then you have movies where they even make an entire movie appear like one shot, like 1917 by Mendez. Um, I, I should say, though, like, we've already talked about Itumama Tambien a lot, but mm-hmm. this was this was stuff Koran was doing in as far back as yeah. 2001. Mm-hmm. He, and Harry Potter, the third one, by the way, also has yeah. a ton of long takes mm-hmm. in it. It's the mm-hmm. only one of the Harry Potter movies that has extended yeah. takes, extended shots like that. Um, and the, it's he, it's very much been part of his style. Mm-hmm. And I I know I'm going to sound like I'm just advocating for Quran, <laughs> but I really don't think that he uses this as a gimmick. I think it very much serves his world building and sense of documentary realism right. Yeah. Yeah, he uses it as a tool, not as a, a gimmick or a selling point or like, you got to go see this movie. It's got a 10 minute one or like stuff like that, right? Like, there's. Also, I haven't talked there... about it yet. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. less important than some of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, there's. I, I mean, and I mean, it's kind of a part of this show's DNA is that we're always talking about one scene at a time. And the joke behind the scenes, at least, is that we were never going to do oneers because that's not the point of this right and oneers are not the most impressive thing that you can do especially when they're super loud right, right. I'll, I'll link it as well there's a great um every frame of painting video about spielberg and how his oneers are like 90 seconds long and they're only that long because that's how long they're useful any longer and you're calling attention to the craft and it's drawing people out of it whereas Quaron immerses you in this. This one, I think, is the most successful because the idea is keeping you in the very vulnerable, panic-ridden cabin of this car. I would agree that it it is the least gimmicky of the three really long takes in the film. But mm. similar to the second one, it's an escape and it's an action scene. Yeah. The third one is more of like a you need to observe this whole moment, like mm-hmm. full, like without taking a second to cut away you need to experience this in one breath almost but the first two which are both chase sequences i think are pretty brilliant directed action sequences and i think one of love the second one yeah Yeah. one of one of the best quiet uh yeah one of the best excuses for a long take is keeping your character in a sequence that they can't get out of and mm-hmm. kind of maintaining that mental space where your character can't escape because you can't escape. You're not getting that cut that alleviates the pressure from you. And that's yeah. that's how this kind of editing works. Yeah. Every, every time there's a cut, to whatever degree, a little part of you and your brain takes a little breath out, right? That's right. To understand. It will always like... And you can cut very quickly to ratchet up tension and things like that. That does work... Sam Raimi makes it work. You know, lots of people do. Um, the the Safties, they cut tons, and their movies are extremely tense. Um, That's for frenetic energy, I think, too. Yeah. This is a different thing where, I mean, there's there's a, a quote from one of the videos that I was watching where Quaron just wants you to live in the real time of yes. this. Right? So anytime you cut, you can kind of think like, well, did we just lose three seconds? Did we cut to the next thing instead of the next instant? And in this the camera's just floating through this car cabin as things get bad and then get worse and then get horrible. And it's not until after that that the camera kind of pauses, it looks at some of the consequences of the scene, and you get the cut to the next scene. And yeah. the the car rig that they used for this was pretty revolutionary, uh, although camera cars are not 
a new thing. This was a pretty unique kind of camera car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had basically a giant roof that, like built onto it where the camera was attached to an arm that hung down into the middle of the car that could spin around on a remote system so they were controlling it from a third so from like a different area on set and they and it could move on two axes as well yes yeah that's right, right. It yeah like, it had a track yeah. and it could p- spin around track going going both ways x x and y but mm-hmm. yeah um yeah no it's a it's it's a it kind of looks like we again all these videos are linked but there's some footage of this thing it looks like when you have like um like the camper on top of a car, right? Yeah. The roof kind of like curves up. Like the bed. But then you've got, yeah, but then you've got like the driver, the actual driver of the car, because Chiwetel Ejiofor is acting uh, as the driver. The actual driver is down in this little tiny seat on the front bumper below below the hood so the camera can't see him. Then there's guys outside each of the car doors and one guy at the back. I think they're watching monitors. It might be Lubezki running the camera. From I think one of them they're doing top. some of the door stuff too. Yeah. Um, and then it's, it's just, I mean, you can look up the scene on YouTube and just watch it on its own. And if you haven't thought about it this way, like watch the scene and think about where the camera is and where the people are in the cabin. Cause no one's getting out of that car. It's moving down the street. It's not on a green screen stage. So as the camera moves around, Julianne Moore or Chiwetel Ejiofor will have to like they're they're cranking their seats and like lying down and allowing the camera to pass over them while also remembering their lines and maintaining the panic and the fear and the pain that's occurring as they're being attacked and Julian gets shot and Julian dies really really incredible stuff when you consider like how often actors are like I have to get in the right space and I need quiet on set and all of which I think is reasonable. Like, if you want to give a great performance, you, you know, you need certain standards of control. But what Quaron was asking of, of his of his team in here is to be able to turn it on and turn it off to remember their lines and remember their, their blocking and, and move around in that car appropriately. And I think when you watch all that and you see, you, you go from this really happy moment where, like, Julian kind of opens up. He's laughing. They do the ping pong ball thing. You know how many people I've tried I this with? You'll be happy to know, out of the hundreds, hundreds. you are still the I'm only not doing one. It. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you the are. car's moving yes, too you much. Are. You are. Ready? Hilarious! <laughs> and then just like a minute later, Julian is dead and has bled out in front of him. Yeah, and, and while the camera's moving around, while they're moving down a street, it's, in, it's insane. And yeah, the scene opens with so such a different kind of tone. You get Clive Owen making a crack about. Are we uh, planning a sing along? Good. I'm gonna take a nap. And then he wakes up. Joking ensues between him and Julian. So what'd you do? Rob a train, blow up a building. He's a girl. You told me he was suave. One kid's a drunk. He's suave. Should have seen him in the old days when he was a real activist. Uh, you were the activist. I just wanted to get laid. They, yeah. they have. There's everything is very light. Uh, he meets like this is where he like first meets Key in this scene too, and they're yeah. about to embark on this amazing journey or this incredible journey together. And their first interaction is quite humorous. And then all of a sudden, you see, you hear, oh no no, what's that? And then. Yeah. In, the, in the like upcoming, you see that car coming down, like the burning car coming down the hill that's about to block mm-hmm. them onto the road. Look out! <laughs> Jesus! Shit! Go! 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 We're gonna make it! Come on! We're gonna I'm make it! I'm not gonna make it! I'm not gonna make it! 
And wow, what a shift in tone. If anything, in a conventional setup, that's where you would cut, right? You'd cut to something outside the car and you see like these bandits running down the hill, but they keep you in the car. And I just, I mean, I think this is such an effective rug pull. That's why I, I love the decision yeah. to kill Julian here is because you're starting act two. Theo has decided to buy into the mission, right? It's the, not the refusal of the call, but the next one, if you want to call this by the, the hero's journey, which it isn't a hundred percent, but it has, it has its, its overlaps. Theo is bought in and you're like, okay, we're on the journey now. It's going to be this crew. And Theo is happier than you've seen him yet in the movie. He's laughing. He's doing this ping pong thing. He's making jokes about sleeping with Julian. They're talking about their relationship, where it was. And you're like, oh, I can see, like, she's bringing all this stuff out of him in a matter of seconds. And you're like, he's a different person. And then she's gone. It happens so quickly. And And it kind of just teaches you, you're you're like, anyone's up for grabs here. This is the movie you're watching. Nobody is safe. And that goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about as far as keeping this in one contained shot or without cutting away, you're experiencing this whole spectrum of emotions from Theo's character and really all the mm-hmm. characters, but mostly Theo's perspective of be like, because there's already been an idea introduced between the two characters that their love might be rekindled. Mm-hmm. It's kind of le- it's leading you to believe that at least they are going to try once this mission is over to rekindle what they had and so we get a really good tease for that and their chemistry is so tangible and palpable that we want that to be a thing and then it's taken away from us just like that so fast and there's nothing we can do because we're locked in to the camera position there's nothing theo can do uh because we're pretty much in the car trapped with him we see how hopeless this situation is and that's why yeah. all this works so well contained in one shot. Yeah, it has that agreed upon cinematic realism. Because again, I've never been in war. I've never seen anyone die in front of me. But I think we've established a language in cinema for this is like, this is closer to the Saving Private Ryan side of the spectrum. Where someone gets shot, it's it's pretty much over. She gets shot in the neck. Right. Blood hits the camera lens. Right, um, the squib does really amazing work, I think, and and more really like she's pale already, and like you see the life drain from her and the panic in Theo, and then again within a minute after that, you see how he's kind of like he's not panicking as much as the rest of the people in the car until um, Luke uh, shoots the police officers again, yeah. and then but I mean, and, and then the scenes following this, like just in terms of Theo's arc and what this this scene is in that it's this little false start of hope right that's right yeah i think right then his hope is in like can i get back with julian Uh, for for background like him he and julian were together prior to the movie they had a son the son died um so it ties into the whole infertility thing they could have had a kid but um he was unwell it sounded like he died from pollution uh, or or one of the many plagues, right? He had weak lungs, which Michael Caine explains in another phenomenally shot sequence. Um, and this is kind of like, you're like, oh, okay, like act two, like Theo's already kind of self-actualizing. He's got an arc and his arc is like, will this mission bring him and Julian back together? And the movie's like, that's not even remotely what this is about. It is about hope, yeah. but this isn't where he's going to find it. And just to point out another amazing thing about the script at this point 
in the scene is just how much background we get about Theo's involvement as an activist because we don't mm-hmm. get a lot, but we get a really important story for context about him lacing, or like about him basically drugging some police officers with ketamine. And yep. that tells you so much without having to be like, yo, Theo was this badass activist who caused mayhem and did all the stuff you, to the police imagine, officers. Yeah. There's nothing. Can you imagine the weaker script where like the fishes, when they kidnap him, they're like, whoa, you're Theo. I've heard about you. You mm-hmm. did this, this, and you, you were behind the bombing of the Great Britain. You know, like it yeah. could have been so much more wonky. And this all just feels so much more lived in. Uh, you buy it when they talk about things and you know why they don't otherwise, right? Like how much is unsaid? Yeah, I um, like how the how everyone seems to think of Theo just based on the context that Julian told them about him. And mm. basically all they know is that Julian said to trust him, so we're going to trust him. And they don't yeah. and that's the only context we get between the two mm-hmm. sides. It's it's yeah. I don't know, refreshingly honest and real. Mhm. I, I love how it works. And another thing, like along with that, the camera doesn't um, obviously cut throughout this sequence is you have the same song on the radio throughout the whole sequence, yep. which really keeps you in it. The song Wait by the Kills, which is introduced. The, old, the shot prior to the long shot is this perspective from the woods where it pans and catches the car. And I don't know if you, you could read into that as saying like it's kind of like they're being watched. It could be a little hint that like there are bandits in the hills or it's just it's a it's a good sort of intro to the scene. They're in the they're out in the country. They're going to uh, Canterbury or Coventry. Mm-hmm. Canterbury, um, I think. And and the uh, the radio, the radio uh, DJ is like that. beautiful. The afternoon is looking good here on Radio Avalon. And now one for all the nostalgics out there. A blast from the past all the way back from 2003. That beautiful time when people refused to accept the future was just around the corner. There's kind of um, nostalgia, right? And then, you know, Theo wakes up and they immediately they start joking and talking about how it used to be and this ping pong trick that only he can do with her and it's never worked with any other guy. And, and can we and talk all this about stuff the and, ping pong trick for a second? Yeah, that ball is CGI, right? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> And the shadows don't really work. No, it's like one of the only things that the CGI, if you really if you really have a brain for it, you can be like, yeah, none of this is at real at I don't all. Think, I don't think the blacks in the shadow are, I don't think they match the scene. Yeah, it's something Which about the dullness small, of the ball. But, but um, they, again, the actors really sell it. I think it's yeah. extremely well oh, yeah, yeah. ghosted by them, which really really like we everyone always talks in camera work this actor had to like play against a a tennis ball whatever we always talk about how difficult this stuff is but like can you imagine just like having to rehearse with julian moore where you both just open up your mouths and go like okay now i'm firing it you got to catch it and the camera has to jerk and but the yeah that's the thing the camera whips with the ball Mm mm-hmm and uh, it's, so it's, it's this it's is camera by a joystick. It's yeah. not even a guy moving it in his in his hands. Yes, yeah. I mean the, kind of thing, the beautiful thing about CGIing a... the ball there though is you control you put the yeah, ball in the whip, the yeah, which is why you perform such a exact, such well. a extreme camera movement to mm-hmm. do that with an effect in mm-hmm. it. Usually that'd be like the opposite kind of idea of what you're trying to mm-hmm. do. But complex camera movement obscures the ball in the whip shot, but. Mm-hmm. keep in mind this is all in the middle of a long take like this isn't just like a we're one-off like, yeah. scene where it's like oh yeah we can mess this up and try it again it's like no you have to reset the whole thing they they have to go a kilometer and a half back down the road yeah 
and right, then reset the other thing, they have like this this mountain not mountain but like country lane all closed off mm-hmm. um you know because again like you know if there are four cuts in this then it's probably like a minute a piece but like yep. a minute is a long take when anything you're driving in a car than, yeah yeah anything longer than well i mean even if you're standing still a minute's a minute's a long take right mm-hmm. like if you're not not but, acting on but stage to, as right, far as resetting a scene cut. Yeah. like uh That's so much these are called setups right like so a setup is basically the starting position of cast and crew when the when the when you say action that's a setup uh mm-hmm. so this is where all the lights are this is where you know like all your props are are set that's that's a setup and to reset this setup over and over again even if julian moore and clive Owen were like like mis- made a mistake on shooting an invisible ball between each other's mouths <laughs> it's like it's like okay now we have to drive the car back there because we need this exact scenery in the background to keep it consistent mm-hmm. and like they this this stuff is so well choreographed that you you have to plan this meticulously and you don't mess it up once you have the plan or else that screws up everything about your plan you don't call yeah. audibles on the day you, you stick with your plan and you hire good actors because you don't want to do too many takes and that's why you have mm-hmm. such a, a great a-list crew in the car and not to like you know suggest that the a-listers were given all the lines because they could carry the weight but that's kind of you give your lines to only a few of the characters in the car and then you have so much less to worry about and ter- instead of giving all five characters lines yeah it's really just just two of them it's because julian's killed almost immediately so then it's really just mm-hmm. luke and theo kind of yelling mostly well yeah i mean um as far uh, key, as key and is it sorry is it pam yeah what, what's uh name? sorry yeah. Mi- uh, miriam. miriam miriam key and miriam they have lines that are like off screen so they very yes. well could have been adr'd right where they're that, kind exactly. of like they're they're joking with theo or they're they think it's gross that like theo is making out with julian moore when he's got the ping pong ball in his mouth but like those things there's a good chance they didn't do that in the car if they did they just they they kept the camera on julian and theo number one is a storytelling thing this is the last breath you're going to get of this relationship and the most tragic because you think it's rekindling but also just out of simplicity you can have key say like that's gross or like i thought you you said this guy was suave he's a drunk and they just leave that for adr so they can fit it in where they need it and it's perfect and you don't have to have five moving parts you just have two or three plus the car plus the camera plus yeah. all like the million things that make this complicated because like we said earlier too the camera is where those two actors were sitting for more of the scene than anywhere else in the car it's like where miriam is sitting which is the middle seat in the back that's yeah. where the camera's positioned the most frequently mm-hmm. so her and key's lines are are omitted probably from the like the live shooting and mm-hmm. you're just adring those lines to get like more accuracy and also you you need to focus on the two characters that mean the most to the scene which is julian and theo and that's why the Mm -hmm. camera faces that way the most but uh, going back to our what we were saying about this crazy camera car that what made it extra difficult is that the camera does do several 360 spins in in the Mm -hmm. like by the completion of the scene so you're seeing all the way around the car meaning that there's no sidecar that's propelling the fake car along that's why you have like the guys you know very low to the road in front of the Mm -hmm. like that are actually propelling the vehicle forward 
Yeah, you'll often, like, if you see a car being driven in a movie, right, and it's, but the camera is giving you an angle into the cabin for, like, you know, if the two people in the front seat are talking, nine times out of ten, it's being, it's on a trailer, or it's, like, hooked up and being pulled by another car. So you still get the parallax, you get everything moving behind it, but, of course, the actors don't have to worry about driving safely. Yes. They can focus on giving their lines. And this one, again, it's, it's, there's this concept... That another film, like YouTube film critic I like, Captain Christian, came up with. Or he, he, he at least used it as sort of the, the focal point for this idea. But he called it like hitting the lamp, I want to say. And he did this great video on um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Where there's a scene like Who Framed Roger Rabbit is about mixing um, cartoon yeah, and animation. real world um, assets. Which is obviously going to be a very complicated endeavor, especially at the time uh, uh, in the late 80s. Um, that movie's incredible, yeah. Yeah, but there's one sequence where on top of all that built-in complexity, they start the scene by having Roger's head bump a lamp and move yeah. lighting across the scene, which just amps everything up. It makes it that much more difficult, and I really feel like there's some of that spirit at play here where there, there are ways you could have controlled the camera where it's like, well, it never looks out the back, or it never looks out the one side and just pans around like 270 degrees from the right side of the cabin towards everyone um and he was like no it's going to see all sides we're going to hide the very few cuts we're going to put the camera where people are so they have to get it out of the way right there are just all these things that Quaron held it to all in service of the story not in service of doing something that's flashy right because again right, exactly that's the big we, point yeah when tay and i say like this is one of our favorite movies it's not because it's got the most monumentally well-filmed sequences that show you what a camera can do when 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 it comes first because the camera shouldn't come first it is a tool right the story comes first and i think that's all at play in the scene and in the movie yeah and i feel like you know obviously tim and i don't have first-hand accounts of this set experience but talking about the complexity of shooting something like this i feel that if you have direction that is precise honest and seemingly coming from a good place and i think koran is a masterful director in all these in on all these accounts because he always seems like he has a plan that he follows and seems like he develops such an inherent sense of trust in his crew and cast that they will perform and you know put each other's seats up and down in the middle of acting if koran says it will work because Mm-hmm. He's not only a technical genius, but he's seemingly very good with his actors and talent at getting the most out of them in extreme shooting scenarios. Uh, all this to say that this is an incredibly difficult thing to do, and he did it. He executed it almost perfectly, without flaw. And I think, and I think they again. I think they make it look easy. I think it doesn't call That's attention it, exactly. to itself. I think. Unless, of course, you know, you've been listening to this podcast all year and we're changing the way that you look at movies <laughs> and you start paying attention to this. I think when I saw this in theaters in probably early 2007, I definitely didn't see it at Christmas. Um, I didn't know. I didn't notice that this was, whoa, this is all one long camera shot. What I noticed was how tense I was. Mm-hmm. What I noticed was how shocked I was when Julian died. Yes. Right? And it's not until later where it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, the camera never did cut. Like, I was locked in. Because, again, it's that perspective in the story should come before the rest of it. And 
I know we we could list. I know people listening. You could list other movies that you've seen since then, where when they do a oneer, it's obvious, and they're saying, "Look at us! Look at what we're pulling off," which is a disservice to the movie uh, itself. Typically, the best editing is invisible editing, mm-hmm. in almost all cases. But um, yeah, that pretty much wraps up our scene discussion so. for today. Um, mm-hmm. Once again. You know, we're, we'll still get to our shout-outs and recommendations, but thanks for listening to our podcast for the first year of its existence. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to diving into a second season, but uh, this is definitely one that we wanted to talk about at some point, and uh, no better time than, uh, than is the, the finale for, for season one. So thanks for sticking through with us. Um, before we leave Children of Men, uh, we, we, uh, we're going to shout out um, some of her favorite character actors, it looks like. Uh, do you want to go first, <laughs> Right, I guess, yeah. That's, we didn't pick a theme for our shout-outs this week, but we both ended up Just happened. deciding on two wonderful side characters. So I am going to discuss Nigel, who is Theo's cousin in the film, uh, played by Danny Houston. Um, like, I don't know. Danny Houston, I'm used to being a much more imposing figure, so I feel like he lost some weight to play this character or was just he very does... thin at this point. Yeah, he does look lighter. Like, Danny Houston has, like, a Ray Wise-esque yes. yep. uh, evilness to him generally. Like, they both look like they could very well be cast as the devil. And this is <laughs> one of the few times I, I can I can think of Danny Houston being like, oh, yeah, he's, he's kind of a nice guy, you know? Yeah, and I kept expecting his character to kind of turn for the worst or be a more sinister character, but he never turns into that. Instead, he is just a purely interesting figure that is introduced to kind of provide some sort of distorted context for this world and mm-hmm. his role is the is like the president of the ministry of the arts program called the arc of arts which is preserving and saving infamous piece infamous art from around the world uh, i guess when the world collapsed that was this organization's duty and mm-hmm. he he has a lot of cool asides about um they say La Pieta couldn't be saved. Yep. Yeah, yeah. La Pieta, they couldn't save. And then, I mean, the Nerdwriter video, which we've linked to, makes a good point that later in the movie, there's a real-life incarnation of La Pieta. Yes. Where, yeah, yeah. where a woman is holding her dying son, which, mm-hmm. is a, which is a nice little nod there. But yeah, they couldn't save La Pieta, but he's got David. Yeah, th- there's a lot of cool artistic nods. Yeah. Like a little section of the leg missing that's mm-hmm. been replaced by like a, like a, a stainless steel bar. And, which is a nice touch. And also one of my favorite art pieces of all time, which is Picasso's Guernica uh, in its mm-hmm. full size too. That's the actual size of Guernica. And it's really, it's used uh, amazingly well by the cinematographer to kind of engulf Theo uh, mm-hmm. in, in the background, like as his background for the dinner scene, which I thought was amazing. Nigel um, also air guitars some King Crimson. You strike me as a King Crimson fan. Is that, I, is that I do right like King. Yeah, I like King Crimson a lot. I think it's uh, one of my favorite vinyls. Actually, mm-hmm. the Court of the Crimson King, in the Court of the Crimson King. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the fact that that song's playing uh, on that awesome static shot of the the car hood ornament going through the gates and all that. That's mm-hmm. that's a really cool shot to enter into that scene and then. The music that starts, it's one of the few uh, non-diegetic pieces of soundtrack that then becomes diegetic as you enter the scene and enter Nigel's space. Uh, So pretty much everything that the scene is saying artistically, I am really interested in, 
but also this character is really well uh, is really well conveyed because I just want to know so much more about them. It's a very interesting character at a interesting time in the story that we never come back to. Yeah, it's a great like it's maybe one of the best intro lines in this movie where he just comes around the corner air guitaring. Couldn't save La Pieta. Smashed up before we got there. Pretty rummy, huh? Which perfectly right? epitomizes him him as an actor yeah. and as this character, actually. Yeah, yeah. He's very and bold. It, yeah, it does make you be like, you're like, oh man, like, what are what are his missions like? Like, is he leading like a paramilitary crew of like uh, like British uh, special forces like into Italy to like steal art from a dying world. Like all of that's fascinating. Yes. And it's not even there, right? Yeah. It's just extra flavor for your mind. It's really mm-hmm. good. And he sells it. And a really nicely shot scene. Uh, the setting is really cool. So that, that scene to me has always been a standout and it's a one-off in the movie. Yeah. And then mine, on the other hand, I'm calling out, uh, shouting out Peter Mullen. Uh, who plays Sid in this movie? The um, actually, the fascist is, pig. Is, he's the fascist pig, is what he definitely is. <laughs> Michael Caine tells you to make sure you call him a fascist pig, um, but he he basically like he's one of the 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 police uh, members of the force that that handles all the refugees, right? So he gets them into Bex Hill at the end, uh, Bex Hill on the sea. Um, which is sort of their their exit from the country and where they connect to the human project. But he's got this super strong scottish accent he's a bit of levity in the movie in the in the later parts of it where there isn't a lot because he's just a very silly guy i don't know if this is in the script but he speaks in in third person about himself which is is always just a funny choice and peter mullen is someone i was never super aware of and then just in the last couple years i realized that i've seen him in tons of things because he just disappears into them um unfortunately well not unfortunately because you know good for him he's working but he primarily does tv now um, he had a great role on Ozark where he plays like a Missouri, um, heroin farmer that with would a work. really sick American accent or sick, <laughs> really thick American accent. It's pretty sick too. Um, sick. and, uh, really sells it and didn't recognize him at all. And then also, um, um, he was in the TV show top of the lake, which is a, a crime murder mystery from New Zealand directed by Jane Campion, who, recently lost the Oscar for uh, Power of the Dog. Um, and in that, again, his accent work is incredible, and he just disappears into the role. And it was just in this watch-through for this episode where I Googled who is, you know, I looked up the cast. I'm like, who's playing Sid? And I was like, oh, one of my favorite guys, guys <laughs> who have shown up in TV shows. Um, I just looked him up on him. I looked him up on IMDb, and he's going to be in the new Lord of the Rings show. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, they don't they don't say who, but uh, no. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing what he does in that. But yeah, I think he's a great part of this and, and a very effective um, sort of heel turn um, becomes very menacing very quickly. And I'll tell you, when I, I saw this, I was 15 in theaters um, when the way that Theo deals with Sid in the end really stuck with me. That was a very palpable instance instant of violence. Um, yep. Because really, I'm, really I'm pretty me. sure he's dead. I think so. He takes a car battery to the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, you know. It hurt. It looks kudos like it hurt. to you, Peter Mullen. I'm a big fan. All right. Yeah. And uh, with that, we'll wrap this up. Uh, next episode, uh, we don't know what the movie's going to be um, in uh, 
in June. We'll let you know. We'll we'll pick that one to kick it off, but we'll let you know about the vote. Um, keep an eye on your feeds. There might be a little extra little bonus something that hits your feeds in between now and then, but we'll see. And uh, other than that, we thought a nice way to end the season would be to recommend a movie and one of our episodes. Maybe ones that we, you know, we can see the stats back here. Ones that didn't get quite the love that some of our other episodes did. And we think it's because people haven't watched the movies. So I'd, I'd like to recommend uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. That was one of our Halloween movies. It's a phenomenal movie. I yeah. think it is the best. Like if you chart John Carpenter's best movies versus the least seen ones, this one is the Nexus. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is so underappreciated and it's so good. So if you're looking for a nice horror movie to watch this summer... Check out In the Mouth of Madness. Then go check out our episode. We'd appreciate it. Uh, Tay, what do you got? I, I was going to harken back to our second episode, which is Gattaca. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are... Uh, well, I was actually going to bring it up in our earlier discussion, but I figured I'd just save it for this recommendation. Uh, we talked a bit about subtle instances of science fiction kind of being inserted mm-hmm. throughout Children of Men. And Gattaca does it on a more overt level, but some mm-hmm. of the some of its futuristic depictions specifically about vehicles and cars are kind of similarly handled in the sense that it's like a unique way of depicting vehicles as a way of indicating the future. Uh, however, in Children of Men, I did want to point out it's one of the coolest aspects about how they designed all these futuristic looking cars is that you can tell how some of the cars look older than others. Mm, And they're still, like, not the cars that we recognize, but they're older versions of the new cars. Versus Gattaca, which all the cars are shiny, brand new, vintage retro cars. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it in the Gattaca episode, but the cars, like, they're, like, classic makes, but then they add little futuristic things onto them, or they change the way they sound just through design, like... Some very cool work, and you can hear all about how we think Gattaca establishes that futuristic aesthetic in the episode. So we recommend you definitely check out those movies, give those episodes a listen. In the meantime, maybe over the next two weeks when you don't have us on our regular schedule. But uh, if nothing else, we will catch you uh, in June with the start of a new season. Um, and uh, I don't know if there's any lesson from this movie. Uh, uh, either you know, don't be really showy with your camera work or uh, don't give up hope, either one. Yeah, either works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you next season. Bye, everyone. Oh, man. Almost. It's, It's the last episode of the season. You think I'd have it.